Morning. 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 You all right? I thought I'd uh, start with a little djembe solo today. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. No, just kidding. Just kidding. I could. But I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Build you up and let you down. Father God, as we approach your word, we do so with reverence and awe and humility. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you open our ears and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us. And God, any, any words that I might utter that are not of you, let them fall to the ground. But the, the seed that is truly of you, let that take root in our hearts today. Amen. So uh, today we are finishing our time in Genesis and our story of Noah. Um, the four chapters that we've been looking in particular from Genesis 6 to 9, they tell us a lot about ourselves, a lot about our depravity, the, the sort of built-in sinfulness of humans. And they also tell us that even when God rescues us, we have this tendency to go back and wallow in the dirt again. But more importantly, these chapters tell us about God. They tell us how important the human race is to him. How he's always got this plan of salvation. And they tell us about God's appreciation of covenants. So covenants in the Bible, they're binding promises that are often, but not always, conditional. And as Keith mentioned last week, in the story of Noah, we see the first occurrence in the Bible of the word covenant. That's in Genesis 6, and it also appears in today's passage, which is Genesis 9. And this is God making a commitment to mankind. And whenever we see God make one of these promises, they reflect his purpose that he established at, right at the start to raise up a people with whom he can have a relationship of love. Created beings in a healthy, submitted relationship of worship towards their creator. So the story of Noah really is the story of salvation, which is one of the main themes that runs like a golden thread through the tapestry of the Bible. The story of Noah is also the story of justice. Uncomfortable though it is, we have seen how God consciously destroyed the vast majority of life on earth in order to bring about his purpose of righteousness, in order to show his holiness. Have you ever read the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis? No one? Some nods. You can talk, you know, that's okay. So Aslan the lion, he's the character in the books who represents Jesus. And one of the things that's often said about Aslan is, he is not a tame lion. And that's a good metaphor, you know. Probably we'd like God to be some kindly, benevolent, Father Christmas-like character who brings us presents and lets us sit on his knee. And this is a popular view of God, but it's not the truth, not the whole truth. Just as Aslan is not a tame lion, our God is not some woolly, ineffective, universally tolerant caricature. He is a holy God. And so the story of Noah 
is also a story of punishment and rejection of unrepentant sin. And Noah is a story of new beginnings. It's another repeated theme in the Bible. Humans get a second chance. A second chance, as it turns out, to foul things up. Again and again. In God's grace, his forgiveness is always there. One question away. Another question, if I repent, if I truly turn from this life, will you forgive me? And the answer is always yes, without hesitation. So I'm going to break up this chapter into easily digestible chunks today. There are a few different things that stand out. So let's take this bite by bite, starting with Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 4. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood." Now, it's a, it's a while since we looked at the start of Genesis, but you might find something really familiar about this passage. If you flick back to chapter 1, you'll see why. What, what God says here to Noah is very similar to what God said to Adam and Eve right at the start, but there are some important differences which we'll bring out now. So if you can, if you have a physical Bible anyway, keep one finger in chapter 9 and turn also to chapter 1, verse 28. Ha! There's something you can't do easily with a Bible app on your phone. Sometimes you uh, just can't beat paper. In your face, modern technology. <laughs> so here we go. Chapters 1 and 9 simultaneously. Genesis 1 from verse 28, and God blessed them. Genesis 9, and God blessed Noah and his sons. Genesis 1, and God said to them. Genesis 9, and said to them. Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9, identical, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 1, we come across the first main difference, and subdue it and have dominion over. Genesis 9 says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon. Then Genesis 1, very similar to 9, the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In 9, it's every beast of the earth upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Genesis 1 says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. But Genesis 9 says, Into your hand they, that's all living creatures, are delivered. Genesis 1, you shall have them, that's the plants for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Genesis 9, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So what do we notice? The differences between those Two passages and the similarity. So firstly, this is brilliant, there's still a blessing in both cases. And the family is still to fill the earth. 
But what started as a, a righteous, a really positive rule over creation is replaced by this struggle, this innate fear, the terror, hatred of humans on the part of all the other living beings. Another difference, humans that were initially to eat fruit and plants are now allowed to be carnivorous. And you sort of get the impl implication that animals are, at this point, some of them become carnivorous. But consumption of blood is forbidden because it sacredly represents life as given by God. So, question, should we eat black pudding? I'm not going to answer that one, by the way. <laughs> so, a lot's been written about the flood and speculation, maybe, about the effect that it had on the environment. And certainly, as we continue to read the Bible, it seems that life expectancy starts to decline significantly from this point. And we start eating meat. And animals become scared of us. Now, this is a huge difference, really. Uh, you remember in chapter 2, God brought all the animals to Adam to see what he'd called them. So that's everything from birds to snakes to rabbits to deer to big game, all calmly coming to Adam and receiving their names. Try getting within two meters of a house sparrow. Now, these birds live around humans most of their lives, so you'd think they'd be used to us. But no, terrified. The same goes for mice, frogs, whatever. Not cats, obviously. Cats don't care. Ew, human, you think you're so scary. Meow. <laughs> <laughs> when Noah and his family stepped off that boat and all the animals in the ark were scattered, things were going to be very different. The, the peaceful relationship with living creatures is now characterized by strife. And this is all an ongoing consequence of the fall of mankind and the sin and the violence that's rife in our hearts. And speaking of violence, verses 5 to 6. Chapter 9, 5 to 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is the introduction of capital punishment. Whether humans are killed by animals or by other humans, the responsible party is to be put to death. This follows immediately on from verse 4, which talked about the sacred nature of blood. So killing a human being is an act of sacrilege. It's a spiritual offense because it is a violation of the sacredness of human blood. The blood that's in our veins represents the life that God puts in us. Blood's a really strong metaphor in the Bible. It's part of our special meal, communion. And the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. And I don't really know how to explain it. It's spiritual, it's mystical, it's a truth that maybe we can only comprehend if God reveals it to us. Lord, please help us to understand why blood is so important to you. When God puts his life in us, causes blood to flow through us, this is a holy, sacred thing. We are consecrated to him as part of creation, which, remember, right at the start, he said, was good. 
Murder also is an offense against the image of God. It's an attack on his holiness and his character. So God made man in his image. When man intervenes and kills another man, the murder unmakes the victim, presumes to undo God's work. And throughout the Bible, we see that decisions about life are said to be God's divine prerogative. He and only he has the ultimate say who lives and who dies. We see him delegate that right to the state. And we see that here in this passage when he introduces the concept of capital punishment, but note that humans may only take a life in accordance with well-defined guidelines. And in this passage, there must first have been an unlawful killing. This is an act so profane that it tramples on God's rights and it can't go unpunished. In Genesis 4.10, we saw this earlier in the series, Cain's killed his brother Abel and God says, this is Genesis 4.10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is a violent offense that God can't ignore. And it was human violence that provoked God to send the flood in the first place. So Genesis 6, going back a few weeks, Genesis 6, 11 to 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. This violence is unacceptable, and God's put an extreme stop to it by wiping out all the violent people, all the murderers. And now he issues a dire warning about further violence. It's not okay. So this isn't a fluffy, cuddly God who punishes no one and gives everyone a medal for participation. He's a holy God. He cannot tolerate sin. Verse 7, chapter 9, verse 7. God repeats the command to populate the earth. And we'll talk more about the success of that endeavor a bit later. Short story. We're all here. Um, Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So God's design here hasn't changed, which is to raise up an entire new race of created beings with enough free will to be able to choose to be in relationship with God, to choose to love him. And God's wiped out most of the life on the earth. This is a reset, starting, starting with a family that honors him. Let's get back to this vital work of filling the earth. So I mentioned the importance of covenant, and here's where we see God making his covenant with Noah, his family, and all the animals. The covenant was anticipated in chapter 6, and here in chapter 9 we see it come into effect. So chapter 9, verses 8 to 11. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the earth, out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
a few things to notice about this. Firstly, it's, it's fairly straightforward, isn't it, really? God's saying, that whole flood thing? I'm not doing that again. I mean, really, with the benefit of this Bible, you'd think that once would be enough. But maybe not. And notice that the covenant is stated to be for Noah and all his descendants, his offspring. So we today live in the benefit of this promise. And to the best of my knowledge, there hasn't been a global flood since the time of Noah. But also notice that God promises he won't destroy the earth with water. If you just have a quick look at 2 Peter 3, uh, 2 Peter 3 verse 10. It says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Burned up, that's fire, not water. Maybe there's something in that, maybe not. But what we do know for sure is that God will never again decimate the earth with a worldwide flood. And that probably doesn't surprise us, because we've got the benefit of several thousand years of history after that, including the story of Jesus' sacrifice for us, and the sacrifice that gave us a chance to stand righteous before God, despite the violence in our hearts. Now, for one of the most famous parts, the bit about the rainbow. Verses 12 to 17. Chapter 9, verses 12 to 17. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I will make between you, me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Aren't rainbows wonderful? You've got to be stony-faced indeed to look at a full-length rainbow without some sense of wonder. A double rainbow. Isn't that magnificent? Scientifically, we can explain how rainbows appear. It's all to do with the way sunlight is refracted through rain, through water, split up into its component wavelengths, the visible and invisible colors. But science can only reason about what it can observe. Scientists can only talk about what they can see or measure. Science can't tell us about, can't speculate about, a universe in which rainbows don't exist. Nor can it tell us why our universe is composed so that rainbows are possible. Science can't tell us why God chose to create laws of physics that would make our hearts swell with wonder. Did you ever look up into the night sky? Now, on a clear, cloudless night with no light pollution, 
rare to find a spot like that these days. But as your eyes adjust to the dark, you see more and more stars. On a really clear night, you can see the Milky Way. With the naked eye, you can sometimes see some of our neighboring planets. And do you ever look at that and just go, wow! The created universe is awesome. It's outstanding. There's literally nothing else like it. Some people have tried to argue that rainbows didn't exist before the flood. Whether they're right or wrong, I can't say. I think it's unlikely they're right. I mean, God certainly can alter, if he wants to, the physical properties of the universe any time he likes. Uh, he instantly changed wildlife so that all of a sudden animals were afraid of us. So he can operate on that scale easily. I don't think we need to go there. I don't think the text demands that we make a case for rainbows as a brand new phenomenon. See, God often attaches a sign to one of his covenants. By way of example, Exodus 31, 16. So God's speaking to Moses here, and he says, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations, as a covenant forever. All right? So the context, uh, here is, you've got Moses, he's on Mount Sinai, he's about to receive the first edition of the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them, and you'll immediately recall that the fourth commandment is about the Sabbath. You got that, didn't you? But the Sabbath already existed. It was already a thing before the Ten Commandments were given. The first mention of the Sabbath is back in Exodus 16, when the manna's falling on the ground, you remember, and God tells the Israelites not to collect it on the Sabbath. That's going to be a day of rest. So the Sabbath already exists, and then in Exodus 31, God attaches the Sabbath as a sign to the new covenant that he's making with the Israelite nation. So back to Genesis 9, I don't think we need to argue particularly that rainbows were a new innovation at the time God made the covenant. They might have been, but the text doesn't demand that. Do you see? We can simply accept that rainbows are appropriated by God, who, who made them in the first place, let's remember, whether then or later, as a sign to testify, to speak on his behalf of his promise to Noah and to us so that we might see it and remember. And we do, don't we? You know, sometimes, if we're feeling spiritual, we'll look at a rainbow and go, oh, yeah, 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 I know what that is. This is a side note. Can I just make an observation? We know that the rainbow is now regularly used as a symbol for other purposes, right? And I sometimes see Christians become enraged by this. How dare they, they say. The rainbow is a symbol of God's promise. I kind of understand that, but, you know, people can use the rainbow for whatever they like. It's not going to diminish God's promise one iota. Let's not be angry about this. God doesn't need us to defend him. He's perfectly capable of defending his own honor and he doesn't ask us to do that for him. He asks us to stand against injustice, to protect the unprotected, to love the unlovely, to pray for our enemies, to share his good news. 
He doesn't ask us to squabble about his covenant symbols. Not in any version of the Bible I've read, anyway. So the rainbow is a sign of God's promise. It's a sign of his commitment to the human race, and it should remain for us a source of wonder. The next section of chapter 9, verses 18 to 19, read like this. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So as I alluded to earlier, this is the family of Noah going forth and multiplying, doing so quite successfully. And broadly, the human race divided at this point. Clearly, we're all descended from Adam and from Noah, and after them, we're all descended from one of the three sons. I mean, it's not quite as simple as that. In the three lines from Noah, there'll be much intermingling between the generations. I doubt that anyone is pure Shem or pure Japheth, though I do sometimes wonder whether I might be pure Ham. (laughs) But as I say, we broadly have a split into three. The three brothers go their separate ways and begin to build clans and tribes and destinies. If you're taking notes, and you might want to draw up a table here, so column headings would be sun, races, nations, and region. Sun, races, nations, and region. And then a row for each of the three sons. So starting with Shem, the races that come from Shem are the Semites. You might recognize that word. Anti-Semitic is more common. Orientals, Jews, and Arabs, which together are the Semitic races. And um, nations from Shem, you've got the Middle East. So Iran, ancient Assyria, modern Syria. The whole region from Shem is the Middle East. Then from Ham, the race initially from Ham is the Hamites. From there you get the Africans and the Canaanites. Nations from Ham are Southwest Asia, like Libya. Canaan, which doesn't exist anymore, Palestine. And then in Africa, initially you've got Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia. Uh, So the region mainly from Ham is North Africa. From Japheth, you have the Japhethites, Western Europeans, most of us rabble. So the the nations from Japheth are uh, Europe. So France, Spain, Germany, Wales, Romania, Greece, Macedonia, Yugoslavia. I was surprised to see Wales as like one of the main ones in this list, but... (laughs) (laughs) And Asia, Georgia, Moscow. So the regions from Japheth are Europe and Russia. And I'm sure you're waiting for the spiritual principle now. And uh, disappointingly, I don't have one. Just thought it was interesting. You know? And there's, there's a lot to read about this if you want to know more about how the race is divided. But um, onwards to verses 20 to 23. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. We can only imagine the state of the earth after a devastating flood. I mean, just think of sometimes the images you see on the news about a localized flood, and multiply that by like a million times. We don't know exactly how long the earth was flooded, but it could have been a year, maybe a bit more. That's a year with 
all vegetation underwater. So there aren't going to be many crops left after that. So Noah began to be a man of the soil. And we don't know what he did before the flood, other than boat building, obviously. But after the flood, he became an agriculturalist. Back in Genesis 3, we saw God's curse in which he condemned man to labor to work the ground, uh, to produce crops, to make bread. So Noah returns to this work, and one of the delightful plants he first cultivates is the vine. So in those days, they wouldn't have known quite as much as we do about alcohol, but I'm sure they would have seen the natural fermentation process, and to some extent, they will have made use of it and experienced the effects of drinking fermented grape juice. And so, unfortunately, in verse 21, we see Noah absolutely blotto. And somehow, he's managed to wind up in his home, wiped out and stark naked. So, hands up, no. Um, <laughs> I can honestly say I've never had that particular life experience. But if it happened, I don't think I'd want the people to find me in that state to be my children. So Ham, remember, he's ultimately the father of the Egyptians, the Canaanites, and so on. He's the first to stumble over drunk dad. I don't recommend anyone do what he does next. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Guys, guys, guess what I just saw? Dad's in there, and he's off his face and starkers. Yeah, funny. It's not very honoring, is it? Not very respectful. Bear in mind what's happened before this. So from Genesis 8:16, we know that Noah's boys were married because they went into the ark with their wives. So they're old enough to be married. So they must be old enough to remember that by listening to God, by ignoring all the ridicule, and by doing what he was told... Noah has saved their lives. You'd think he'd be entitled to a little respect after that. Well, no, and I'm afraid that this seed, this seed of mockery, lives in us all. Now, why do we do it? I guess it's because we want to make people laugh, we want to be accepted, because through making someone else look bad, we make ourselves look better. But it's wicked. We shouldn't do it. Talking to myself here. Pay attention, Rob. Genesis 3, um, Adam and Eve sinned, and as an immediate result, they developed a sense of shame about their nakedness. Nudity was completely innocent up to that point, but it's now something that can cause shame when nakedness is separated from honor. This is one of the reasons why sight of each other's nakedness is basically reserved to the marriage relationship. This is a relationship of honor, of trust, but where innocence is removed and who of us is innocent, nakedness is strongly associated to shame. So in telling his brothers about Noah's state, Ham shamed Noah and utterly disrespected him. Now, meanwhile, Shem and Japheth, they avoid looking at their father and they cover him up, which is a far more honoring approach. There's a lesson for us here. Genesis 9, 24 to 27. 
When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So Noah seems pretty angry here, doesn't he? He's angry because of what Ham did. Angry enough to curse someone. So who does he curse? Well, not Ham. Noah curses Canaan, Ham's son. I was looking at my website a few days ago, and I I noticed that about five years ago, someone asked me the question, why, when Ham sinned, did Noah curse his son Canaan instead? I thought it was a good question. I still do. So I wrote a blog post about it. And if you're interested in a slightly longer look at this question than we have time for today, by all means, check out that blog post. Um, Just put Probing Faith, that's the name of my blog, Probing Faith, Why Did Noah Curse Canaan into your favorite search engine? But to get to it in a nutshell, let's ask, what do we know about Noah? So, for sure, he was someone God singled out as a righteous man. But what has he just done? He's got naked and exposed himself. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul writes, the Apostle Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, capital S, be filled with the Holy Spirit. But don't get drunk, it's quite clear. And why not? Is the act of getting drunk itself sinful? I don't think so. I think Paul's actually being quite wise here, as he always is. Getting drunk is debauchery. You make a fool of yourself. I'm studiously avoiding looking at anyone now. You make a fool of yourself. You behave in an ungodly manner. You make rash promises. You form unwise alliances. So Noah got drunk and made a fool of himself. Noah, the God-fearing man, as it happens, turns out to be quite human. And this quite human man takes his wrath out on his son's son. And sometimes we need to remember when reading the Bible, especially when reading the Old Testament, which contains so much history, just because something's recorded in the Bible, it doesn't mean that God condones it. The Bible records King David's adultery and murder. It doesn't praise him for it. So it's possible that what we're looking at here is an angry reaction on the part of Noah. Look how terrible Ham is. Let his son Canaan become a slave to my good boys. And Canaan. So the Canaanite race doesn't exist anymore. But can you remember who the Canaanites were? Does the land of Canaan ring any bells? The Canaanites were one of the principal races, principal nations living in the promised land. And that was the land that God was later going to give to the Israelites. Israelites are descended from Shem. Canaanites descended from Ham. So in in Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 to 2 we read, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. 
you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. So Noah's curse was against Canaan, and ultimately God's judgment was against Canaan. You say, is that fair? Well, almost inevitably, we pass on as parents, we pass on our traits to our children. So if we're deceitful, scheming, underhanded, we are very likely to raise deceitful, scheming, underhanded children. If we're faithful, kind, and loving, then God willing, we're going to raise faithful, kind, and loving children. But Ham, through this initial act of disrespect towards his father, I think he shows the kind of person he is and the kind of people his children will be. And those sinners suffered the consequences of their sin. Just at the end, Genesis 9, 28 to 29. Genesis 9, 28 to 29. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. 950 years. And he was a drinker. If you go to your favorite internet image search engine and type in how life expectancy declined after the flood, you'll see some graphs which are based on the evidence in the text in the Bible showing the dramatic fall of life expectancy following the flood. It just drops off a cliff for a few generations before settling around the 70 to 80 year mark. Now, how long would you expect a perfect being to live? You know, if your genes had no defects, you were fully fit, there were no environmental factors attacking your body, how long? In Adam and Eve's case, I think maybe the answer is perhaps indefinitely. And certainly while they had access to the tree of life, they were going to be okay. But they fell and creation fell with them. And we can only speculate here because the Bible doesn't say much other than speaking about the perishable nature of our bodies. So like in 1 Corinthians 15.50. But maybe, maybe, genetic mutation started the moment the first couple sinned. And it took several generations for the resultant defects to shorten the average lifespan. And perhaps also the flood changed the global climate significantly, increased the amount of radiation we're exposed to, and generally made the planet less hospitable. As I say, we can only speculate. But we read here in God's infallible word that Noah lived almost a thousand years. How many telegrams would he get from the queen for that achievement? Before we close, I'd like to turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. And this chapter mentions some of the characters that are now quite familiar to us. And um, we're going to read verses 1 to 7. Hebrews 11, 1 to 7. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation... By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. 
By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. If we look on uh, Noah as this strange historical character, far removed and so different from us, we risk missing the truth of this message. Now, simply put, the thing that unites us with Noah is faith. Noah believed in God. We believe in God. Noah was flawed. We're flawed. And so we can draw near to God and receive his reward. As we end the story of Noah and step away from Genesis, I hope we'll take some time to reflect on what we've learned these last few weeks. But above all else, we've seen that God has a reward for us, for those who trust him, who have faith in him, his plan of salvation. And we see that clearly in the story of Noah, how despite God's righteous and totally justified anger, he still saved Noah's family. He still ensured that the human race would grow. And God ensured that his purpose would not be thwarted, his purpose to raise up an immense race of people who would come to understand, to appreciate, and to love their creator, who could, through salvation achieved by Jesus at the cross and the salvation hinted at in the story of the ark, who could draw that people to him and ensure that even though they were a sinful people and he was a holy God, they could still have a relationship. We can still have a relationship, a relationship of worship, of love, of blessing, of eternal hope. We have so much to be thankful for. If all you've heard today are just words, and you're not sure what all this means, let's speak, let's talk. This is good stuff. Let's explore it together. Father, we honor you for your word. We honor the, you because you chose to set these things down in writing so that they could be examples to us, so that we could learn about you. And Lord, the, the seed of your gospel, which is here right at the beginning of the Bible, right at the start of the story of creation, we ask that you plant that seed. You've already planted it in so many of our hearts. Let it grow, Lord. Let it spread. Let us multiply and fill the earth, not just with human beings, but with saved beings. Lord, we want all men and women and children to come into knowledge of you. That is your heart too, more so than ours. Please help us not to shy away from our responsibility in this, not to be in our cozy buildings, isolated from the rest of the world, but be sharing this truth 
this truth that has saved us from so much and which will save them. In your name, almighty God, and for the sake of Jesus, your son. Amen.